All right, if uh, you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians once again. 2 Corinthians, we are in chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14 and read on through verse 4 of chapter 13. That's our next section. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 14. As you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. As the Apostle Paul begins to wrap up his discussion and bring all the threads together, find some wonderful instructions here that help us as we continue on our labors of tearing down spiritual uh, strongholds of the adversary within our midst and in the world at large. So, verse 14 of chapter 12. Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. The Lord adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please do be seated. All of you out there look pretty normal. You know, most of you look kind of normal. Well, you know, most normal people don't like confrontation. Anybody here like that? Okay, I thought you were all normal, so there you go. Nobody likes confrontation, uh, not if they are normal, decent human beings. It's, even when you're in the right, it's uncomfortable, it's unpleasant. And particularly in the, in the climate that we live in uh, socially, and uh, sad to say, even in the church, it's a it's it's often taught that to 
confront another person is to be judgmental. Uh, it's to be unloving and unbiblical, especially if the other person's a Christian. We should just, you know, let go and, uh, you know, let God sort that all out. Of course, there's a, a little element of truth there, but uh, it misses the point of many passages of Scripture. Rebuking an erring brother is a sacred duty that is bound by biblical principles. It's a key factor in the effort to tear down ungodly strongholds of belief and practice in others. It's, I'm sure most of you have thought of before or been told before. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, how loving is it to let a blind man go walk off a cliff just because you don't want to make him uncomfortable because you told him he's heading in the wrong direction? Not loving at all. It's actually loving to confront him, even if he says, I don't believe you, and you're a jerk for telling me this, and leave me alone. Um, he may not think it very loving, but uh, it is an act of love on your part. So the principles of, that, that bind this rebuking are pretty simple, actually. Paul sums them up in the book of Colossians, and I'm going to have you turn there really quickly to Colossians chapter 1, and we'll have opportunity to come back to this passage um, a, a time or two as we go along through the 2 Corinthians section that we're looking at. But um, Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Paul says, Him that is Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So take a look at these basic principles, and then he's going to kind of, um, to use the, the, the cliche these days, unpack 2 Corinthians in light of these principles. So first, warning, confrontation, should come in uh, with instruction. Notice what it says there in verse 28, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So just saying you're wrong is half the battle. Uh, proper rebuke and confrontation should contain instruction as well with the wisdom of God. Secondly, your goal is to present every man perfect, everyone uh, mature or perfect in Christ. Uh, it is not to uh, make yourself look good, um, convince everyone about how powerful and authoritative you are or anything like that. It, it, there's a goal in mind of the edification of others. We will have an opportunity to talk about that even more in just a minute. And then third, the rebuke needs to be done in the power of Christ, according to his working, which works in me uh, mightily, as the King James has it, or here in the ESV, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me, not according to the strength of our own arm, but in the power of and according to the methods of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with those three basic things in mind, um, warning with wisdom, um, the goal of edification, and um, doing all in Christ's power and not according to our own energy and efforts, we will examine then Paul's more extensive teaching on this subject here in 2 Corinthians, particularly regarding your motives in your rebuke, the target issues that should be the subject of your rebuke, the manner of rebuke, and finally, the method 
of your rebuke. So let's get back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And um, I want to, first of all, deal with this matter of motives. Now, in verse 19, Paul is saying, asks the question, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? Certainly, if you look at all of Paul's argument thus far, as he's talking, he's been talking about his apostleship. He's been talking about his methods. He's, he has been justifying his approach to them. But Paul says, I know that it looks like that it's all about just essentially getting you off my back or getting you feeling better about me and liking me more or whatever. But that's not the point. The point is, he says, it is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. This goes along with what we just talked about, just saw in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, which, uh, where Paul speaks of, of doing these things to build up one another. So as we talk about our motives, the first one here that he, that he gives to us is speaking. We speak to one another, we rebuke one another in order to edify one another. Speaking to edify the brethren. And we've seen this word edify or build up a couple different times in just the passages that we've read so far. And this has the idea of, of spiritual encouragement or making someone more able to do the right thing. Uh, that your focus should be on the process. You know, in the book of Jude, which is almost entirely one big rebuke uh, to uh, the false teachers that were there. Jude uh, doesn't just say, go in there, you know, with hammer and tong and, uh, you know, slay the giant, so to speak, and, uh, you know, wipe the blood off your hands. There's a different aspect to the process there. Yes, confront the false teachers. Yes, rebuke the false teachers. But Jude has also an emphasis upon the process that contributes to edifying uh, the saints that are there. And where he says in, in uh, verse 20 of that little letter, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> if you've ever tried to build anything, big or small, it kind of helps if you know what you're doing. How's that for a Captain Obvious statement? Uh, but, but honestly, um, that's the case, is it not? We can often jump into things and do things without really knowing what we're doing. And if we do that, then we have problems. We have issues that make it difficult to complete the task. Or if it's completed, it's not completed well. If we're going to build up one another and, and have this as a rebuke, uh, a goal of our rebuke, uh, the motive for our rebuke. It is, again, not to just throw our weight around, but it really is to help someone be more able to deal with their sin, to deal with their the issues, their fears, whatever it is. It's not just to put, put them in their place. It is to actually equip them to do better, to encourage them that there is hope to make them more able in their Christian walk. That should be a prime motive when you get ready to rebuke someone. Now, I want you to just stop for just a second here and think about the last time that you rebuked anybody. Could be your child or it could be a friend. It could be a spouse. Could be, um, 
you know, another family member. Just think about that for a minute. And then think about your motive and why you said what you said. And was your first thought, I want to help this person stop whatever they're doing, rethink what they're doing, or was it just, I want to let them know how ticked I am, how hurt I am, how whatever. It's not that those things should not be expressed, but if our prime motive is, is us focused, we will not follow the biblical principle of building each other up when we rebuke. And the rebuke will basically tend to make the rift even bigger with a much less possibility of genuine healing taking place. And here's something else to think about in your motives. Not just as you're striving to edify each other in that rebuke, but also notice the context that Paul is, is speaking of here, not just in, in 2 Corinthians, uh, which is, um, well, look at verse 19. But it goes back to the Colossians passage as well. It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking to you. Again, let me take you back to that, that last time you, you rebuked somebody. Did the thought ever cross your mind that I'm standing here in the presence of God saying what I'm saying to this person? What is the Lord thinking about my, the content of my rebuke, as well as the manner and the methods and all of that. To, to be aware that we are not doing God's work in a vacuum without God present is something that we sometimes struggle with. Whether it's a rebuke or whether it's just general service of kindness or whatever it might be, everything that we do is in the sight of God. And I know we all know that, but it's really easy to forget it particularly when our emotions are high and we have been offended, and I mean legitimately offended and hurt, um, it's very difficult to remember uh, that the Lord, yeah, the Lord has something to say to that person who's done the wrong, but he also holds us accountable for the way that we approach those people, the way we approach anyone. So, Make sure that your motives are holy and right, not self-serving, but in the sight of God, striving to build up one another and to please your Lord. Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to his glory. So the motives are pretty simple. Now, but let's, let's think about, and I'm a little alliteration here, so I'm going with all M words, so... Forgive me for a little bit more of a casual word for the next blank there. The Lord, God defines your motives. He tells us what the motives should be. He also defines the mess to be rebuked. You know, what are the issues that we should be exercised enough about to want to rebuke others? Now, the list that you're going to see here, you're going to go, well, yeah, those are obvious. But I want you to stop for a minute and think about... What are the sorts of things that cause issues and division and heartache and hurt between one another? What is it that causes us to just have that tear raise up on the back of our neck with irritation 
because somebody did something or said something. To, there are people that, look, that go around, and sometimes even in the church, just looking and waiting for somebody to mess up so that they can, they can lower the boom on them and let them know how, um, how wicked and ungodly they are. When the stuff that they're fussing about um, is not really anything, doesn't have anything to do with God's standards about anything. It's just little preferences that they might have about how things should be done. I notice that right now, a little bit of my, my OCD stuff going on right now. The last two rows of chairs back there, somehow, I'm not sure how I missed this, but those last two rows of chairs are six inches too far into the aisle this way opposed to everything else. I do not have straight lines down there, and it's kind of driving me a little crazy right now. And that's the kind of thing sometimes that we get upset with each other about. Deacons, how come you didn't notice that? How come you didn't fix that this morning? Come on, Tom. You're falling down on your job. There. Oh, somebody else moved them. Oh, yeah, see, there we go. Right? But, but those are the kinds of things that I, you know, I know I'm being a little bit ridiculous, but I, I, I have to tell you that church splits have happened over stuff that's dumber than that. Because we get, we get all torqued and we want to get, come, come after somebody because, well, they didn't get the chairs pushed over far enough. In this case, our custodian was sick this week, so I pointed that out because that's on me. I said I was going to take care of this, and I, I didn't. I forgot. And now it's driving me crazy, so it's my own fault. Um, but... You know, we need to fight God's battles according to his priorities and what he says are the important things that we, you know, get in a grind with somebody about. What are we going to confront them about? You know, or am I going to, conf am I going to confront some of you because you're not up to my, you know, my uh, impeccable corduroy standards here this morning? Are you going to are you going to fuss at somebody because um, they um, sing too loud or not loud enough or something else to meet your standard of, of how things should be done? Well, what does the Lord say? Or some some of the the kinds of issues. This is an ex, is not an exhaustive list, but look at the issues that are here that the Lord says. That, and then Paul, under the inspiration of the Lord, is saying here is this mess that I've been working on with you, the Corinthian church. So when you look at verse 20, he says, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And then you look at the end of verse 21 as well. And he speaks about those who have not yet repented, uh, perhaps, of impurity, sexual immorality, and the sensuality that they've practiced. What is this mess that, that Paul has been addressing? He hasn't been fussing over minor stuff with them. He's been dealing with hardcore issues that the Corinthians have been holding on to, uh, favorite sins that have caused ungodly conflicts 
because of their pride. So the focus here is about conflict between people, between Paul and the Corinthian church, but there's been a lot of conflict within the church, uh, just the general membership as well. And look at the nature of these, the, the conflicts that he speaks of here. Um, in the quarreling, another word for that would be just contention or constant arguing uh, about things. Jealousy, uh, speaking of rivalries within the church. Um, you know, that person gets more, more press than I do. That person gets more attention. They're given more responsibility. I should have that. I'm just as good as they are. Da, 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 da. That sort of thing. Um, anger, that's a pretty obvious one. Just walking around it with an anger, angry uh, attitude towards one another. Uh, hostility here can also um, translate a word that has the idea of hostility that arises out of a partisanship, uh, party spirit idea. All of these things are caused by pride. Uh, what's the next one? Um, slander or defamation. Just um, and and its and its sister gossip. Uh, all things that we we use our mouths to elevate ourselves at the expense of others. Again, it's a pride thing. Um, and then we see uh, there also, uh, let's see, I just lost my place. Uh, there we go, uh, conceit, and there's that. Uh, the, the pride in another in a synonym there, but um, I, I like the word conceit as opposed to pride because Conceit has a little different connotation to it that I think is helpful for us to get at what we're talking about here. Not just a, a sense of satisfaction and a job done well, but conceit suggests um, a satisfaction with ourselves that is completely unwarranted. And certainly that is something that causes division and, 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 uh, and conflict. And the last one, disorder. Interesting word, the idea of confusion. If you're going to confront somebody, make sure you're, uh, you think about these, these lists. And the, the first part of this list, it all sounds, that's pretty obvious. Contention, rivalry, anger, partisanship. We give, sure. But confusion? Where does confusion, how does confusion fit in with this list? It doesn't seem like it rises quite to the same thing. Anybody here ever been confused? <laughs> yeah, happens to me all the time. Uh, and uh, probably does you as well, from time to time at least. We don't necessarily think of confusion as a sin. But uh, again, I like what the ES, how the ESV has translated this as disorder. It's a disorder, uh, a chaos that leads to confusion, a disorder that comes out of a refusal to abide by God's order. So it's not like if someone gets mixed up about, you know, something anything. We're going to go have our fellowship meal here in a little while. And, uh, if, oops, somebody put a fork out, a big serving fork out with a dish that should get a spoon, we're not going to go rebuke that person and let them, you know, know that the wrath of God is upon them because, uh, they clearly should have put a spoon there instead of a fork. So that's not that kind of confusion. It's the kind of what you rebuke is when someone in refusing to obey God's law and God's rules for order, for worship, for, uh, uh, concepts of authority and 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 government and all those things in the church and the home and everything else 
insists on doing things their own way that creates confusion within the body as to what should be done and it creates confusion in our testimony to the world that says, uh, basically gives, to use the Old Testament phrase, shall the trumpet give an uncertain sound. That comes about because of pride. Because somebody says, I've got a better way to do this. And I don't need you or God telling me how that should be done. And then uh, verse 21 also speaks of immorality. Um, as if you, once was not enough, he repeats it three different ways. Uh, as something that he has been rebuking. And certainly that is something that should be rebuked also. Uh, immorality is something that's caused by pride. Um, so uh, there's another part of this mess, and this you could say this really is a mess. These are, but these are the kind of things that we should put our energies into rebuking, not the matters, not things that are matters of indifference. But look also at verse 21. Uh, something that. Uh, that uh, makes things worse. It's bad enough when somebody does these things to us or to others, but it's worse when they refuse to repent of it. And certainly that is something that must be confronted and rebuked. In verse 21, um, I don't want to be humbled before you. Uh, I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented. That uh, un unrepentant hearts must be confronted with the truths of God's word and the demands of God's word. These are the kinds of things that we're to rebuke, uh, not things that are related to our own preferences uh, or matters of indifference. But then how do we go about it? What's the manner uh, of our approach? Again, uh, we're in verse 21. And actually, from 14 through 18, uh, this all plays into this particular, uh, this particular point that's summed up in verse 21. Because you look at verses 14 through 18, and Paul's asking them a series of questions, basically saying, you know, I haven't been saying all this stuff just so I can puff myself up in your presence. I haven't, I'm not going to take advantage of you. I haven't taken advantage of you. Nobody that I have... Um, sent to you, has taken advantage of you. Uh, all of us have been striving to uh, build you up in the, in the same spirit, with the same methodology, the same steps, the same manner of service that is summed up in verse 16, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That really sums up well the manner of how we go about rebuking others. It's so easy, is it not? When you know, or at least you're convinced, that you are in the right. And particularly if someone's belligerent, to want to respond in kind and let them have it between the eyes, which they may just deserve in God's sight, but uh, he may not have appointed you to be the judge, jury, and ex executioner. Rather to go and minister to one another as we rebuke them. Firmly, boldly, certainly Paul did that. We see that in other parts of just this passage as well. But with the attitude and the manner 
that whatever it costs me, I'm willing to be spent. Um, I'm willing for it to cost me if it builds you up. I rather think that that is probably not the first method, uh, first thing that comes to our minds when we are ramped up about letting somebody know how they wronged us or wronged someone else. But it needs to be. It needs to be to have that servant attitude before we open our mouths. Look at verse 21. I fear that when I come again, God may humble me before you. Uh, he's, he's not saying, I don't, I don't want to be, I, I want to preserve my, you know, whatever, my uh, integrity before you, my name before you. They've been saying he was weak. They've been saying that he was crafty. They've been saying that he was deceitful. And he's like, you know, that's not the point. Um, if I have to come and be as a servant before you again, then that's what will happen. Humility should be part of our rebuke before one another. Um, even in the book of, uh, of uh, Jude, right? Um, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh, right? But you pluck people out like a burning brand out of the fire um, with no sense of superiority there. And, and he, is, he says, I may have to mourn over many of you. Let me, uh, I'm going to ask you a question that, I mean, I'm not looking for a verbal answer, but I want you to think about this. The last time you rebuked somebody, what was the state of your heart? Did, was, there, was there a sense of mourning and loss in that rebuke? There should be. There should be. If you delight in kicking people in the teeth, there's a problem with your heart. We have to get back to the pride problem, right? Oh, I'm going to show them. No, it should grieve us to have to rebuke somebody. It should not be something that we delight in. It should be something that causes us to mourn. Um, it's, it's perversity to delight, to put others down in their place, whatever cliche you want to say. Um, it's wonderful when there's repentance and they turn around and there's a delight in that but just the delight to make them feel bad because they made you feel bad is a problem. Uh, notice also here, uh, I have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented. Now, we've talked about this before to get a firm timeline on when all this began with the, with the Corinthian church to where we are now in this letter. A significant period of time has gone by. Um, have you ever rebuked someone and then, lo and behold, in spite of everything that looked good right there at the, at the beginning, um, the, the results were not exactly what you hoped for. That they sinned again or they did something, they continued, not just again, maybe they continued, um, in spite of everything else that they said. 
Um, wouldn't it be wonderful if every time someone did something wrong, let's take our children. Let's look at our kids out here. Okay, you know kids who I'm looking at. All right, mom and dad ever tell you to do something and you either did it half-heartedly or you didn't do it at all or you did it badly or you just pretended you didn't hear or you messed up, got disciplined for it, got told again, and then lo and behold, the next day, the next week, you turned around and did the same thing over and over again. And then what do you think? Mom and dad discipline you again. What's wrong with that? Wasn't it enough to just say it once? You think mom and dad might need a little patience with you? Yeah. The Lord has a lot of patience with us, does he not? Paul's saying, yeah, it's not like this is the first time I've said any of this stuff to you. I may have to go back. I may have to come back and deal with those that sinned earlier and still haven't really repented. And that's part of the process of rebuke. It's not a one and done kind of thing. Sometimes we've got to walk patiently with people and remember there, but for the grace of God, go I. And, and have that kind of a godly patience uh, because the Lord certainly sees the beginning from the end. All we can see is this moment, which we, you know, in particular, so we, we hate it. We don't like this, um, this wrong that's been done. We want it fixed, we want it over with, and we don't want to have any repetition of it. But the Lord is working for eternity. And so um, there are, I'll tell you the best way to fix the sin problem that we have once and for all that God could do, what would it be? To kill us. You know, we wouldn't sin anymore. We'd be done. That'd be good. But he doesn't do that too often. Right? Though there are occasions when he has done that. We see in the scriptures and there are occasions uh, in the in church history and even our own experience perhaps when we've seen the consequences of a person's action take their life or or have some other harm that immediately reminds them that God is sovereign and in control. But by and large, he doesn't kill us every time we sin. If that had happened, the church would be empty today. Because between the time we got up and the time we got here, all of us, have sinned in our hearts against God in one way or the other. Some blatant, some recognized, some we're not even aware of. I saw a little meme on Facebook uh, yesterday of an iceberg. Icebergs get used a lot for these kind of metaphors, but I, I, I thought this one was pretty good. Where here's the, you know, it's the whole side view from, you know, top, above the waves and below. And here's this iceberg above and it says, the sin I recognize, and everything underneath, the sins I don't recognize. We just have such a light view of sin and a, a, a minimalist view of God that we're willing to just go, yeah, yeah, I see my sins there. Uh, but if we really stop to think about it, and frankly, even if we did stop to think about it, we would never plumb the depths of our perversity before God that we struggle with every day, even as believers. So... Be patient with others. You remember the unjust servant who uh, messed up, owed his master, master comes back, 
says he's owes, he owes the master a huge amount. And the master forgives the debt. And then the guy goes out with his brother, says, who owes him a pittance, and goes, you know, gets a stranglehold on him and going, pay me what you owe. And uh, what did the master do? There's judgment that fell on him. I forgave you much. You should have been forgiving of others. Patience. Patience. And that's a hard one, particularly when the hurt is very real and the sin that's been done against you is very wrong. But that nonetheless, that is a component of the manner of our rebuke. And I'm going to add something here that comes, comes in from another uh, letter of the Apostle Paul's, so the second letter to the Thessalonians, where in chapter 3, verse 15, in speaking of a person who has sinned against you, says, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And I was thinking, how do you admonish a brother, you know, uh, or as a brother? Certainly their uh, families can have some pretty big disagreements. My brother and I used to fight like cats and dogs um, when we were young. And yet, if anybody uh, dared <laughs> look cross-eyed at each other, we would we would rise to the defense just as fast as anything. But uh, when you admonish as a brother, that's a recognition of a relationship that doesn't exist with a stranger. A, a relationship that's not going to end when the rebuke does. The recognition that we must live with one another and be accountable to one another. And that makes a difference in the manner of our rebuke. It's We won't be keyboard warriors as where we just slash and burn with impunity behind the safety of our computer screens without worrying about the rebuke uh, rebuke's effect upon those to whom we're speaking. We recognize we got to look this person in the face. And so be brotherly in the manner of your rebuke and along with that um, be respectful. From 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Um, it's interesting, that word rebuke, and I've been using that word a lot, um, the scriptural word that gets translated as rebuke often is a, is a fun one. Literally, it means to... Uh, inflict or strike with blows. Now I know you're going, now wait a minute, Pastor, I thought you said, you know, we don't, that's not the, not the approach we're to take. Well, hang in there with me. Figuratively, it means to reprove someone sharply or to exhort them in a way that lets them know that they don't have a lot of wiggle room here, particularly from the Word of God. And you put that with exhort in this passage, uh, do not rebuke, but encourage or exhort, uh, is the as, as it's translated elsewhere. But that that uh, moderates that rebuke because it has the idea of asking or asking for or urging something earnestly with propriety. Um, if Stu does something heinous, and I go to uh, rebuke him. Well, he's my elder in more ways than one. 
I should rebuke him for that act, whatever it was done. But with propriety, recognizing our relationship, his age, his, um, his position in life compared to me, um, all of that. I'm not going to sit there and scream at him. All right. Um, I'm not going to come at him. You'll be thankful to know this. I won't come at you with a baseball bat. Uh, it might be effective in getting you to do what I want you to do, but it would not bring about any heart transformation. In fact, it would only make it matters worse, would it not? So, yes, sharp rebuke, sharp uh, uh, confrontation when necessary, but with propriety as you urge uh, a proper response upon someone else. And, and all of this... Uh, if you'll take, uh, well, you don't have to turn back to it if you, if you don't want to, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, which we looked at you know, uh, several months ago now, in verse 8, as Paul is talking about this guy that was, was, was taken in, um, caught in, in a gross sexual sin, and, and he's been commending them uh, for their response to that, and he urges them not to go overboard with this. It's, he's um, repented of this, uh, restore him, and so on. But he says in verse 8, reaffirm your love for him. Now what that says to me uh, as part of our manner of rebuke is that there, there really should be on our part a readiness to reconcile with the one who has wronged us. Out of, out of godly love for that person, out of agape love for that person, a desire, a readiness, a willingness to reconcile when repentance is there and when a change of life is evident and, and, and all of that. I'm not saying sweep stuff under the rug, but there ought to be an attitude on your part that, that when repentance and when forgiveness is sought, genuine forgiveness is sought for and genuine repentance is there to not go, well, no, um, uh, I'll believe you, you know, it's some arbitrary thing down the road. When you see the evidence that's there, having a readiness and not a resistance against forgiveness and against uh, reconciliation. Finally, let's talk about methods. This is in chapter 13. And in chapter 13, um, we read here, this is the third time I'm coming to you. You notice that statement has been uh, stated, or, or was said earlier, verse uh, 14. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And he says, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, which seems a bit, uh, almost, a little bit, what? what? What does that have to do with anything? And yet, if you stop for just a second, you realize exactly what it has to do with, because he's still working on trying to make sure that everyone has repented as they should. He's already talked about those, right, who had sinned previously and have still yet to repent. There's still some work to be done, and Paul is saying, I'm not just going to come in there willy-nilly and just um, throw my weight around because I've heard a rumor, you know, um, I'm coming at you with these things because of the, the validity of the evidence that I have against those who are still in sin. 
And then that said, he says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Now, um, let's, let's think about this for a minute. The whole idea of witnesses uh, as a, and, and the evidence that is there. Couple of, a couple of things uh, have to do with your method. There's both public and personal uh, aspects to your rebuke. Depends on the nature of the sin that was committed. Um, in Matthew 18, the focus there tends to be a little bit more on the personal side of things to begin with, but if there's a refusal on the part of the person to deal uh, with the sin personally, then you may have to ramp it up to make it more public. Um, if you look at Galatians chapter 2, there Paul is talking about the Jerusalem council and where Peter had had a problem with trying to appease the Judaizers that were there. And what did Paul say? I had to confront him to his face in the midst of the company because Peter was sinning very publicly and causing others to stumble. Paul didn't hesitate. Even at that point, uh, there's, no, there's no suggestion in the book of Acts or in the book of Galatians that Paul took Peter aside said, hey, buddy, I mean, Peter is blowing it big time publicly. And Paul saw it, stood up and said, stop it, stop it. And Peter had the right response. He repented of it and did stop it. So sometimes uh, our methods are going to be personal and dealing with it where you can. But sometimes they have to be public as well within the context of the church. And be prepared for, for those options because uh, they're both there depending on the circumstances. Uh, also in your method is, um, I mentioned a little earlier being ridiculous about taking the baseball bat to go confront Stu. Um, uh, that's not, the, the nature of the church's discipline is not uh, uh, corporal, it is judicial discipline. Um, and so we're talking about admonition and particularly strong verbal admonition. We saw that before from Second Thessalonians chapter three of admonishing a, someone as a brother. And the word admonish uh, comes from a word. Some of you are familiar with the, the uh, term that describes uh, biblical counseling where the scriptures are, are lifted up as the uh, as sufficient for dealing with the hearts and souls of men. Um, the word nutheo, nuthetics, have you ever heard of that in relation to counseling? Well, that's the word that's there, and it has to do with warning with instruction. And that's where we got that idea from earlier. So strong verbal admonition is there, and Paul is saying, when I come, I'm not going to spare them. He's not saying, all right, I'm taking out my, you know, my shotgun and, you know, it's do this or I'm mixing my metaphors here, but do this or off with your head kind of thing. Um, he's saying he, he's going to be declaring God's word to them forcefully and admonishing them with instruction. And you know that Paul could go on and on and on from Troas, right? So 
That should scare them because he can talk a long time to admonish them uh, from God's word. But it's, it's strong verbal admonition that's there. There's another aspect to your method uh, of rebuke that I wanted to, to bring in, uh, something that we don't often think about when it comes to rebuking others and admonishing others. And yet it's something that the, the scriptures say to us very clearly, but I doubt that many of us have thought much about it or maybe really even understand exactly what's going on there. When in the book of Colossians, for example, chapter 3, uh, the Apostle Paul commands them to uh, singing and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, any of you ever thought about singing to rebuke? Now, what's Paul saying there? Right? Okay, so... Um, if my granddaughter should disobey me, um, she's probably going to be a little surprised if I walked up, up to her and go, Rhea, you have wronged me. Okay, is that what we're talking about? No. This is in the context of worship. This is in the context of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs have to do with scripturally grounded content that reminds us of who our God is, who we are in relationship to him, and what our conduct should be, what, our, what our, the object of our faith should be, all of those things. So that when we sing in the context of worship, it is a, a verbal, strong verbal reminder of not only our emotional connection to God, but also our obligations to him. This is why Christian songs should be heavy. I mean, there's, there's a, you know, a long-standing joke that, you know, Bob Newhart got going with his, when he had that show where he was a psychologist and all of that, the, the one scene where he basically, he says he has two words and his two words of counseling, um, and that, that's it. And it's, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> and the lady's going, well, what? There's some more of what don't you understand? S-T-O-P, it. Stop it. And it goes on and on. And, and, we, and we want that to happen, right? But sometimes when it comes to admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we need to be careful about the songs that we choose and worship and so on, that there's actually something there more than stop it or more than believe it. There needs to be some content of what the it is in relationship to God's holy word. Otherwise, it's just fluff. It may feel, make us feel all warm and fuzzy inside because the music's beautiful. But Christian music ought to be heavy uh, in content so that we can actually exhort one another as we sing here. That we're not just singing to our own hearts, but we are singing in such a way that we are communicating to those around us the importance of these words and urging upon them by the passion of our involvement in the music, whether we sing well or not, that this is our God, and this is how we should be responding to him, and this is what he will do, and this is how he's to be glorified. And that influx of biblically grounded texts speak to us, and can speak to us in much the same way, 
though not to the fullest extent because of the poetry and, and the nature of, of, that, of lyrics and that sort of thing, but can have a profound impact in much the same way that a sermon does or exhortation personally on a personal level in counseling or just casually um, because it's grounded in God's word. So there's that aspect of rebuke as well. Um, again, I wouldn't recommend this as the only thing you do in rebuke, but nonetheless, it's a part of, of, of how the Lord can, can use you to be um, someone who speaks into somebody else's life, sings into somebody else's life with, some, with, with, with content that calls their actions into account, their beliefs into account, and makes them think about what they've done and how they should respond. Finally, um, going back to Colossians again, chapter 1 and verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Uh, I want to get back to the, this is the with all wisdom uh, phrase there. Your rebuke needs to be wise. Hard to do when you're emotionally wrought up to not just lash out. But you do need to have a, a, a proper a recognition of the actual issue and then a proper response biblically to that that you're urging people to do. For example, if uh, you're, you're confronting someone because of their apathy towards God or the rebellion, outright rebellion against God, think about maybe the, the prophets. They were a great example of this as they under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, came to the children of Israel in their rebellion, what did they do? Did they speak soothing words to them? No, it was exhortation. It was strong reproof. It didn't leave them any wiggle room. Thus and so you have done, and this is the implications of it. You're being foolish, you're being wicked, you're being rebellious. Um, that's the proper response to outright, particularly outright rebellion. Um, what about if someone has sinned against other brothers or sisters? Um, there still may be rebuke and exhortation, but if they've wronged another, one, a part of that rebuke should include, must include, reconciliation and restitution uh, of, of the wrongs done, uh, of, you know, for the loss that has occurred on the part of somebody else. It may be an actual physical or monetary loss, or it could also be the kind of loss of their, their peace of mind, their joy, um, their uh, um, satisfaction in their relationships, whatever it is. Uh, it's not all just slash and burn. There's... But once you deal with the rebellion and you've done with that, then part of the rebuke is, okay, great, we've got repentance here for what you did. Now let's make it right. And that should be part of the rebuke. What happens when the sinful deeds are against yourself? Um, well, exhortation comes into it again. This exhortation, exhorting of asking or for or urging something earnestly and with propriety. You know, it's when people sin against us personally, um, we can, you know, want to come down on them with, 
with, uh, you know, the hammer of God's justice pretty fast. And perhaps that's what needs to be done. Um, but from our own standpoint, you know, how do we defend ourselves when you rebuke one another? Um, do you remember uh, the passage uh, where we're told about Michael when he was, or, or um, um, yeah, Michael, when he was contending with uh, the devil. He didn't, his, the exhortation that Michael did in that contention was, the Lord rebuke you. There's that, it, it, in other words, we can be in a real hurry to be so eager to defend ourselves for our own sake when it's really, ultimately, every conflict, is it not? It's not just an affront against us. It's an affront against the Holy God. Ultimately, the offense is against His. It's against His honor. It's against His glory. And we ought to be jealous for that, rather than, you know, getting our dukes up and deciding we're going to take down the enemy. Um, Wisdom would dictate, in all wisdom that we exhort people from the word regarding their actions and certainly then leave the matter of vengeance and all of that in the Lord's hands. So that brings me to my conclusion this morning. You're not to rebuke in your own power. Just not. This labor is only to be undertaken in the power of Christ. Uh, Take a look there at uh, verse 3. Of, uh, of 13. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live, by, live with him by the power of God. All that Paul said he was going to do as he rebuked them and challenged them, confronted them, would be um, not under his own steam, but under the Lord's, meaning his rebuke was bathed in prayer. He he depended upon the Lord's guidance and ability to work his own will in the lives of other people. Paul submitted to the Lord's direction in the word, and you and I must do the same uh, as we walk by the power of Christ in striving to rebuke others for wrongdoing. It also means you'll combine your warnings with biblical instruction and wisdom and, and that you'll be delivered, uh, 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 driven by the desire that those whom you admonish, whether they're children or spouses or brothers and sisters or the wicked, your desire is that they will come to a more perfect relationship with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you are determined to follow the Bible's principles of admonition, of course, then uh, that implies that you also must have a firm grip of the proper motives, the, the real issues that need to be addressed, your attitudes and your methodology that Paul has demonstrated for you here. So as God gives you opportunity, engage in this duty as faithful servants who are concerned for the purity of the church. And may he grant you the grace to faithfully and compassionately fulfill your duty in whatever sphere he has placed you. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the instruction here about how we are to confront one another, be salt and light in the lives of our brothers and sisters and even indeed in the world around us. Lord, let us never uh, rebuke and challenge um, in our own uh, our own wisdom, our own strength uh, apart from from you. Let us walk in dependence upon you as we confront others biblically and righteously unto uh, repentance and and uh, renewal of relationship with you and with each other. Give us grace to be able to do this uh, in a godly way that is a blessing and not uh, a burden to others. 